Hello, and welcome to the Rooster's Den. We're going to be continuing off of the Rising Action introduction, because I uh, spent too much time on it last time, and there's kind of two introductions introductions in this story, because it's, there's like two main characters, and then like two different period or two different parts that eventually come together later in the book. But right now, we're introduced to the other main character. So we're gonna go over that this episode. So uh, let's uh, let's get into that. Welcome back to, you know, the Rooster's Den, like the, uh, like the, the intro said, you know, the intro you just listened to, you know, okay, let's get into this, let's get real quick, because I kind of want to, I don't have too much time to do this, but chapter three, well, technically chapter three. A serious-looking young woman strode briskly down a long, central corridor of the fifth floor of the United States Department of Justice building. The mammoth, classical, revival structure that occupied the entire block between the 9th and 10th streets. She had a glossy, dark brown hair. She had gloss, glossy, dark brown hair. I don't like ta- the past tense. What happened to her? She did? Uh, <laughs> Uh, dark brown hair, caramel brown eyes, and a sharp nose. At first glance, she looked part Asian, perhaps Hispanic. She wore a tan trench coat, carried a leather briefcase. It might have been taken for a lawyer, lobbyist, maybe a government official on the fast track. Her name was Anna Navarro. She was 33, worked in the Office of Special Investigations, a little-known unit of the Justice Department. She arrived at the study comp. It's the stuffy conference room. She realized that the weekly unit meetings are already well underway. Aris Dupree, standing by the whiteboard on the easel, turned as she entered and stopped in the stopped in mid-sentence. She fell the stairs. She couldn't help blushing a little as there was no doubt what Dupree, Dupree wanted. She took the first seat. A shaft of sunlight blinded her. There she is. Nice of us. Nice of you to join us. Dupree said, even his insults were predictable. Merely nodded, determined not to let him provoke her. He told them he told her the meeting would be at eight thirty. Obviously it'd been scheduled at the start of eight. He would deny ever having told uh, told her otherwise. A pretty bureaucratic way of giving her a hard time. They both knew why she was late, even if nobody else here did. Oh, before Drippy had brought into, brought into the head of the office of the special investigation, uh, meeting meetings were rarity. Now he held them weekly as a chance to parade his authority. Drippy was a short, wide, mid forties, the body of a weightlifter in a too tight, light gray suit. One of three shopping malls he, suits he rotated. Even across the room, she could smell the drugstore aftershave. He had a ruddy moon face, a texture of a lumpy porridge, 
There was a time where she actually cared what men like Dupree thought about her. She had to win them over. Now she doesn't give a damn. Awesome language. Damn, that's a bad word. Damn. <laughs> um, I'm stalling. Uh, she had her friends, and Dupree was simply not among them. Across the table, David and Eve, a square-jawed, sandy-haired man, gave her a sympathetic glare. As someone may have heard, internal compliance is asked for our colleague here to temporarily assign them here to be temporary, temporarily assigned to them. Dupree turned to her, his eyes hard. Given the amount of unfinished work you've got here, I consider it less than responsible, Agent Navarro. If you accepted an assignment from another division, is this something you've been aching for? It's a cut off, but it's like cut off in a spot where it's like hard to read it. Uh, like angered for her, right? You could tell us, you know, this is the first time I've heard of it. She, she told him truthfully, that's right. Well, maybe I've been looping the conclusions here. He said in his tone, softened a bit. Quite possibly, she replied dryly. Making the assumption that you were here, you were wanted for an assignment. Maybe you are the assignment. Come again? Maybe you're the, you're the one under investigation, Droopy said. And then, mellower tone. Evid, evidently pleased by the idea. It wouldn't surprise me. You're a deep one, Agent Navarro. There are laughs from some of the drink, some of his drinking buddies. She shifted her chair to get the light out of her eyes. Ever since Detroit, when the two of them were standing at the same floor, from once in, she turned down politely, she thought. Droopy's drunken, high, explicit puzzle. He'd been leaving considerate little... Wait. He'd been leaving condescending little remarks like rat droppings in a performance evaluation folder as best she can give her obviously limited interest. Errors a result of irritation and not incompletions. He described to her... He described to her as a male colleague she heard as a sexual harassment suit lawsuit waiting to happen. That's kind of that's kind of weird. He tarred her with the most vicious until they can give someone to the bureau, not a team player. Ouch. So if I just keep going through this, we're going to be here forever. I think we... we uh-oh. I lost my page. I don't... Oh, found it. All right, I found it. All right. So, yeah. If I keep talking, if I keep just going through the pages word for word, we're gonna be here forever. I'm gonna skip through. We saw, we described here where she worked, who she is, and stuff like that. Who she knows. I'm going to skip forward a bit. So I keep talking about this. I'm going to be here for like 30 minutes. I don't got. I don't have 30 minutes. Because then it will be 11 o'clock. Yes, I'm doing this at 1024. In, in the PMs right now. I should have done this earlier. But. Let's continue, shall we? Where should I skip to? So she's kind of being bugged because of some stuff. 
uh, yada yada. Uh, that dude's got an infer. Let's see, where would be a good place to stop? <laughs> Tip stuff about the CIA archivists and stuff like that. CIA investigations. Some kind of heavy stuff. Let's just go straight to chapter four. As it does get kind of interesting here. Alright. Ben was driven to the headquarters of the Kassam Polizei. We're back to Ben. The, po the police of the canton of Zurich. A grimy yet elegant old stone building on Zurich Hausentries. I think I just butchered that. I don't know. I, I my my Swiss my uh. What did they speak in Switzerland? Wait, they didn't speak. Wait. Okay, they just speak. Oh, well, German makes sense. German, Italian, French, Romanian. Okay, but I knew that. I don't know why this was. I was thinking it was gonna be like Switzerlandish, but uh, he was led through an underground parking garage by two silent young policemen and up several long flights of stairs onto a relatively modern building that adjoined to the other one. The interior looked like a belonged at a suburban American high school. To any of his questions, his two escorts answered only with shrugs. His thoughts raced. There was no accident that Calvin was there on, on Benhofstrasse. Uh, kind of had been in Zurich with a deliberate intent to murder him. Somehow his body disappeared, having removed swiftly and expertly, and the gun placed in his bag. It was clear that others who were involved with Calvin professionals, but who and again, why? It's the question of the day, folks. Why? Be because he like owns a company now, and he's kind of a business tycoon yuppie. I don't know. That's probably a reason why they kill him. Money. If you would believe it or not, but let's continue. Ben was taken taken first to a small fluorescent lit room, and seated in front of a stainless steel table as his police escorts remained standing. A man in a short white coat emerged and found making eye contact said, Here, Hanibrit. Ben extended his hands and was pointed to argue he knew. The technician pumped a mist of plastic spray bottle onto both sides of his hands and rubbed a cotton-tipped plastic swab lightly throughout the back of his hands. Then he, then he placed the swab in a plastic tube. He repeatedly exercised with the palms. Then did the same with Ben's other hand. The four slabs are now represented the four carefully labeled plastic tubes. The technician took them with him as he left the room. Let's get up here on my chair. It is a squeaky weather chair. A few minutes later, Ben arrived at a pleasant, spirally furnished office on the third floor, where a broad-shouldered, stocky man in plain clothes introduced himself as Thomas Schmidt, a homicide detective. He had a wide pockmarked face and had a very short haircut with short bangs. For some reason, Ben remembered a Swiss woman he, he once met, telling her that the cops in Swiss were called Bullen Bulls. 
and this man demonstrated why. Schmidt began asking Ben a series of questions. Name, date, birth, password, number, hotel, and Zurich, and so on. He sat at a computer terminal, writing out the answers with one finger, and a pair of wearing glasses hung from his neck. Ben was angry, tired, and frustrated. His patience wore thin. It took a great effort to keep his tone polite. Detective, he said. Am I under arrest or not? No, sir. Well, this has been fun and all, but you're not going to arrest me. I'd like to keep my head... like to want to head back onto my hotel. We would be happy to arrest you if you like. The tank replied, Whoa. Blandly, the barest glint of menace in his smile. We have a very nice cell waiting for you. They actually have very nice cells in Switzerland. They're not even like prisons. They're more of like ho- like hotel suites. It's strange. Well, I guess it's not for like mass murders, of course. Maybe for like small felonies, maybe. But they got some nice... Some nice prisons there. Not some terrible public prison here. I think it's Switzerland, I'm pretty sure. Or Sweden, one of the two. Uh, aren't I about to make a phone call? Schmidt extended both hands, palm up, at the beach phone at the end of the credit desk. You may call an American consultant here, or your attorney, as you wish. Thank you, Ben said, picking up the phone and glancing at his watch. It was early afternoon in New York. Harmony Capital Management and in-house attorneys to all practice tax or security laws. So he decided to call a friend who practiced international law. Howie Rubin and he had been on the Deerfair Skeet Racing Team together and had become close friends. Howie's become to Ben Ford several times for the exhibit and like all Ben's friends, have particularly taken to Ben's mother. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I shouldn't have read that. Uh, an attorney at lunch. The attorney was at lunch, but Ben's call was passed through to Howie's cell phone. Restaurant noise in the background made Howie send a conversation hard to make out. Christ, Ben, Howie said, interrupting Ben's summary. Someone next to him was talking wildly. Alright, I'll tell you what. I'll tell all my clients who get arrested while on ski vacation in Switzerland. Grin and bear it. Don't get high and mighty. Don't play ignorant American. No one can grind you down of rules and regulations and everything by the books like the Swiss. They got very good police forces there. Ben glanced at Schmidt, who was tapping at his keyboard, no doubt listening. I'm beginning to see that. When am I supposed to do? The way it works in Switzerland, they can hold you up for 24 hours without actually arresting you. You're kidding me. And if you piss them off, they can throw you in a dirty little holding cell overnight, so don't. Then what do you recommend? Hartman, you can charm a dog off with a, with a meat truck. Buddy boy, so just be your usual self. Any problems, call me and I'll get the phone and threaten an international incident. What if my partner does a lot of corporate espionage work? Point being, they got access to some pretty high-powered databases. I'll pull Callahan's record and see what we can find. Give me a phone number where, where you are right now. When Ben had hung up, Schmidt led him to an adjoining room. It's at a desk with a near another terminal. Have you been to Switzerland before? Schmidt asked pleasantly, as if you were a tour guide. A number of times, mostly to ski, Schmidt nodded distractedly, a popular recreation. Very good reliving stress. I think very good for letting off tension. His gaze narrowed. 
you must have a lot of stress from your work. I wouldn't say that. Stress can make people do remarkable things. And then one day, after day after day, they bottle it up, and then one day, boom, they explode. Crack, snap even. When, <laughs> when this happens, they surprise themselves. And I think as much as other people, as I told you, the gun was planted. I never used it. Ben was livid as he spoke as coolly as he could. It, was, it would do no good as to provoke the detective. And yet, by your account, you killed a man and bludgeoned him with your bare hands. Is this something you would do in your normal line of work? These were hardly normal circumstances. If I were able to talk to your friends, Mr. Harmon, would they tell me about you? Would they say you had a temper? He gave Ben an oddly complaintive look. Would they say you were a violent man? To tell you I'm a lot biting as I come. Where are you gonna where are you going to do questions? Ben looked down his own hands as they would slam the lamp fixture against Calvin's skull. Was he violent? The detective implications are preposterous. He acted purely in self defense, yet his mind drifted back a few years. You can see Darnell's face even now. When he was fifth graders at East New York, Darnell has been a good kid. An A student bright, curious, the best in his class, and something happened to him. His grades dropped, and long before he stopped handing in homework altogether. Darnell never got in fights with the other kids, and yet from time to time, welts would be visible on his face. Ben talked to him after class one day. Darnell couldn't look him in the eye. His expression was cloudy with fear, and finally told him that in Orlando, his mother's new boyfriend didn't want him to waste time at schoolwork. He didn't help him bring in money. Bring money and how? Or Dinah wouldn't answer. When he telephoned Dinah's mother, Joyce Strout, her responses were skittish, evasive, and she wouldn't come into the school, refused to discuss the situation, refused to admit anything might be wrong. She too sounded scared. A few days later, he found Dinah's address from the student records and paid a visit. I'm going to leave that there. We'll figure out what's going to happen in the next episode. And I'll go over the climax as well in that one. Because I kind of have to. And we're hitting 18 minutes. So. I will see you guys in the next episode. See ya.